I'm going to read this morning from Exodus 18. Uh, if you are reading in the Blue Bible, I believe that's on page 34. Exodus 18, starting in verse 1. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. And Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. And then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves, and that will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain. And all these people will go home satisfied. And Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. And then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Thanks, Deb. Well, good morning. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here at Northwest. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. 
Uh, this has been a beautiful weekend. My family and I uh, went to the fair yesterday and uh, spent five hours uh, herding our children around the fairgrounds, which was about four hours too long. Uh, so to be honest with you, I'm uh, barely hanging on this morning. <laughs> and my, my, my wife uh, texted me and was like, hey, do you mind if we stay in this morning? House is a wreck. The kids have been yelling at me all morning. And I was like, yes, yes. It's probably more godly for you to stay at the house and not expose everybody else to our family's carnality uh, this morning. So it's just one of those weekends, you know, one of those weekends. Well, as you heard, we are continuing on uh, in our journey through the book of Exodus this morning. And one of the things that we have consistently come back to, an overarching theme in the book of Exodus, is that God didn't just deliver his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt, but he delivered them to himself. He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and to himself to be his people, to be his people on this earth, to represent him, to show the other nations of the earth who he is. And what we're seeing as we read this book together is God teaching Israel what it means to be his people. He's teaching them what it means to obey. The way of life that they had known, their perspectives of the world around them, their relationship to one another. It had, God had to rewire their existence and their identity as a people. And that's really what we're seeing as we journey through the desert in these chapters with the nation of Israel, is we are seeing God form and shape their new identity. He is showing them who they are, who they are in his family, that they are his family, and how that is supposed to affect their lives, the way that they live with themselves, the way that they live with the other nations around them, the way that they live before him as their God. And a key reality in that process was the understanding that they are different that they have been set apart by God. They are different than all the other nations around them. Through Israel, God would expose the idolatry and the injustice of the other nations that they came in contact with. As Israel moves to, toward and into the land of Canaan, the promised land that God had promised them generations before, as they move into Canaan, what they will experience is resistance and they will experience attack. And what we saw last week as they encountered the Amalekite people is that these, this resistance and these attacks that they experience are ultimately, are ultimately not aimed at Israel themselves, but they are resistant and they are representative of an attack and a resistance against God himself. His rule and his reign. And through Israel, God will judge. But here's something that we also can't miss. This is as important, that God will judge the other nations through Israel, but in this process, God will also expose the idolatry and the injustice in Israel itself. That God will use this journey 
through the desert into the promised land to expose Israel, to shape Israel, to refine Israel, to teach Israel that they are part of a bigger plan, that God's desire is not just to be God over one nation, that God desires to be God throughout the entire earth, to be God over all nations. And this truth had a profound impact on Israel, and it has a profound impact on us today as the church. And what we're going to see this morning is it's not only about global missions, about going to the nations. The book is, of Exodus is a prophetic voice for us in these times, in this age in which we live. And that's where we're going to end up this morning. In chapter 18, as we just heard Deb read these verses, verses 1 through 12, we see a family reunion. The news of God's victory over Pharaoh and over Egypt made its way back to Jethro, who was a priest in the, the land of Midian, amongst the Midianite people. But he also happened to be Moses' father-in-law. Probably Moses' wife, Zipporah, told him when she was back staying with him and the rest of her family. But in any case, however, he heard. And when they had this family reunion that we read of here in these verses, this topic became the center of the conversation. And we read here in the way that this is written that it is more than just a description of the events that happened. It's more than just telling the story of how Moses met up with his father-in-law and the rest of his family in the desert. This here serves as a reminder to the readers of where Moses and where the Israelites had been. Mentioning the name of Moses' children. Mentioning the name of Moses' children, his two sons, Gershom and Eleazar, is a call, was a call to remember that Moses himself was a foreigner in the land of Midian when he fled Egypt, and that God had helped and saved him from Pharaoh, but obviously, as a representative of his people, Moses' journey through the wilderness. Moses' journey through out of Egypt reflects Israel's, that they were foreigners in a foreign land of Egypt, even though they had lived there for generations, and that God had saved them from captivity and from death. And again, we keep coming back to this in our look through the book of Exodus. God doesn't want his people to ever forget where they came from and what God did for them. Constantly, they are pushed to remember. God is constantly reminding them, this is who you were. This is what your life was like. This is where you came from. This is what I have done for you. Jethro heard about this. He heard what God had done. And Moses here tells him the story again. They go over it again, and you can imagine Moses sharing these things and the excitement with which he is sharing these things with his father-in-law. Jethro, as the NIV translated, I love this, Jethro heard these things and he delighted. 
and he rejoiced, as the ESV translates it. He worshiped God when he heard of God's acts on behalf of his son-in-law, his family, but also the rest of the people of God. He rejoiced and he worshiped. He was delighted to hear about God and what God was doing. And look at his statement to Moses. After Moses shares all of these things with him, Jethro rejoices and he says, now I know. Now I know the Lord is greater than all other gods. Now whether or not this was a conversion for Jethro to worshiping Yahweh and being devoted to Yahweh, at the very least, it's a shift in his thinking. He has learned something here that the Egyptians and that the Amalekites hadn't. That Yahweh, the God of Israel, is greater than all other gods. I know, now I know, that God, your God, the God of Israel, is greater than all other gods. And we'll come back to this in a minute in more detail, but remember the words that God spoke to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. God says, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This word translated proclaim in chapter 9, verse 16, is the same word translated told in verse 8 of chapter 18. When Moses told his father-in-law Jethro, of what God had done. He proclaimed the name of God. He, in, other word, in other places in the Old Testament, this word told or proclaimed in the Hebrew is used for communicating good news. Listen to Psalm 78, the psalmist Asaph talking about this. He, he writes, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth, mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things of old, things we have heard and known, things that our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation, the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. These acts of God were meant not only to show Pharaoh, but they were meant to show God's people who he was, that they would know him, that they would know that their God is God amongst all other gods, over all other gods, that there is no other God that is greater than their God. Jethro's worship of Yahweh here, as we see in chapter 18, is a direct result of being told of God's power over Pharaoh, just like God said. Just like God promised when he told Pharaoh that what I am doing to you will mean that my name is proclaimed throughout the earth. He and Moses, Jethro and Moses, they offer sacrifices together. They eat a meal together with all of the other elders of Israel. And all of this is done in worship and celebration in the presence of God. You see, what we're reading here in chapter 18 
isn't just a description of events that happen. This is a contrast between Midian, represented by Jethro, another nation outside of Israel, and Egypt and the Amalekites. God's power and deliverance are being told throughout the world, and for some, it produces worship. And for others, fear and rebellion. As we move into the second chapter, or the second part of chapter 18, we see Moses, after he has had this time of worship and celebration with his father-in-law, this family reunion, we see Moses getting back to the business of daily leading God's people. And part of this responsibility was presiding as judge over disputes and claims that arose from the people. And I mean, think about this. You've got a couple of million people traveling through the desert, living in very close proximity to each other, day after day after day. They've got possessions. They've got animals. They've got tents. They're constantly unpacking all of these things, setting things up, packing everything back up again. They are moving through this hot and dry and arid land. We've seen they didn't have water. We've seen they didn't have food. God had to provide those things. And as they move through the desert with this reality, you can imagine there's going to be some conflict, right? You can imagine that people are going to rub each other the wrong way. There's going to be interpersonal conflict. There's going to be miscommunication. There's going to be all kinds of shenanigans that happen when you have this many people moving through the desert like this in this kind of circumstance. And Jethro sees that Moses is in over his head in trying to help the people work through these things figure out what's good and figure out what's not good, how to relate to each other, how to live with each other. They wanted to know how to live based on God's law. And so it's clear, and we've seen this a couple of other places, that God has given them some kind of instruction up to this point about who he is, some kind of instruction about how to live. So you know, we're getting in, in next week in chapter Exodus chapter 19 and the following week in chapter 20, we are going to see that God takes these instructions and, and codifies them into the law that he gives to Moses to be given to the people. But here what we're seeing is that, that the people wanted to know, what does God expect of us? What does God want us to know about himself? How does God want us to live. Jethro saw Moses drowning in this, and he offers him some practical help. Train some capable men with integrity, teach them how to judge these cases, figure out some kind of system of dividing the simpler cases that these men that you've trained and appointed can handle, and, and what, are, what are the ones that Moses doesn't need to be a part of, and also, what are the things that Moses does need to step into? The more complex situation that requires his insight, that requires his relationship with God to be able to give wisdom and understanding to. And what we read here in the text is that it seemed like this worked. That Moses institutes 
this advice that Jethro has given him. He trains these men up, and they begin to incorporate this system of judging and giving advice to the people and helping the people figure out what God's will is in these specific situations. And it seemed like this plan was a good one, and it seemed like it worked. And the way that we end this chapter is that that's it for Jethro. (laughs) He gives Moses some good advice. He spends some time with his family. He worships God because of what he has heard God do. And then he packs up and he goes back home. Honestly, this seems like kind of a random story in the placement of Exodus. Last week, we looked at this pretty seminal battle, the first battle that the Israelites face against an opposing nation, opposing people. Next week, we're going to see Israel arrive at Mount Sinai and begin to receive the law directly from God and enter into a new season of their relationship with God. But in between this, we're here with this story about Moses' father-in-law and this story that oftentimes we use to teach good leadership principles and good delegation principles and, and how to figure out how to manage a big group of people as a leader. But as I've alluded to, this chapter is theologically significant. Because it points to a larger pattern of God at work. What we see here is that Jethro's response, his response of worship, his response of praise served as a model for how God desired the nations to respond to him. As a model of how God desires the nations to respond to him. And we don't have time to dig into all that this means this morning. Ben, I hope that as we have walked through Exodus up to this point, it has been clear that God's mighty acts of deliverance are not just for Israel's sake alone. But that what God is doing in and through Israel, is part of a bigger plan for his name and his glory to be known throughout the earth. In Exodus 5, chapter 2, Moses, in his first visit with Pharaoh, comes to Pharaoh and says, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And Pharaoh makes this bold assertion to Moses. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And what follows as we looked a few months ago, what follows over the next few chapters is God's response to Pharaoh. God responds directly to Pharaoh saying, who is this Lord? Who is this Yahweh? I don't know him. I'm not going to listen to him, and I'm not going to let his people go. And all of this response by God through these mighty acts and these plagues and these miracles is God's response to Pharaoh culminating in this statement by God in chapter 9. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Moses, 
get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. Let my people go so they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the face of the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God, not only was God working on Israel's behalf, but through his work on Israel's behalf, he was showing Pharaoh, he was showing Pharaoh's officials, he was showing all the people of Israel, and he was showing the entire earth that he was God alone. Pharaoh rejected this. Pharaoh scoffed at this. Pharaoh rebelled against this and would not acknowledge this. And whether through divine grace like Israel received or divine judgment like Pharaoh and Egypt and the Amalekites received, as we saw last week, God's purpose in all of this is to make himself known. To make himself Known. He is once and for all proving to the world that no other God, no other being in the universe exists in his category. He stands alone. He is unique. He is above all other created beings. That is his goal in saving and delivering and transforming Israel into his own people so that through them the whole world would know that he is God. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that his family, that God would use Abraham's family to bless all the other nations of the earth. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, we read that many other people went with them. Many other Egyptians went with them. That's something that oftentimes we skip over. That there were Egyptians living in that land that saw what God was doing, saw his power, saw that he was greater than the gods that they had worshipped, and they went out of Egypt with the Israelites. The Amalekites, excuse me, God is not just trying to be some kind of local deity outdueling another local deity. God's big picture here is that all of the nations, that he would be God over all the nations, that through his work, that like the Egyptians who were there and saw it and experienced it, that many other people, many other people would be delivered and would, become, and would come to him and would experience the blessing of knowing him. As we move through the Old Testament, we see examples. We see it just like Jethro here, a priest from another people group, acknowledging God's superiority. We mentioned Rahab last week, a prostitute living in the city of Jericho, 
When the Israelites come into the land of Canaan, she hides the Israelite spies in Jericho because she believes that God is God based on what she has heard and what she knows to be true about what God has done on behalf of his people. Think about Ruth. Think about Ruth, a Moabite woman who marries into an Israelite family and who eventually becomes a descendant of King David. Think about Naaman. You remember the story of Naaman, commander of the army of the nation of Aram. He was healed of leprosy by Elisha. And as he comes into the land of Israel and is face to face with Elisha, and Elisha tells him to go dip himself in the river, Naaman comes out and says, now I know, now I know. That God is the one true God. We've mentioned this before in our look at through the book of Exodus. But the prophet Isaiah in chapter 19, 21 spoke of a day when Egypt, even Egypt, whom God had judged, will acknowledge and will worship Yahweh as the one true God. Over and over and over again, what we see in the Old Testament scriptures is that God is using his work in Israel and with the people of Israel to make his name known and to make his name great outside of Israel. And obviously when we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus coming on the scene. And a huge part of the scope of Jesus' ministry is not just to the Jewish people. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus, we see Jesus encountering a Roman centurion. And Jesus says this, I've not seen this kind of faith, even in Israel. This Roman centurion had uh, uh, someone he was close to in, his, um, uh, in the group of men that he was over who was sick and in need healing. And he trusted Jesus' power. He had faith in Jesus' power to heal. And Jesus commends his faith. And Jesus goes on to say to the rest of the Jewish people around, around him, he says this, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was referring to the messianic feast that the Jews looked forward to when their Messiah would once and for all defeat their enemies and reign victoriously in his kingdom. And they would celebrate. They would feast. And Jesus mentions this feast, but he takes it in a different direction. He says that faith, rather than ethnicity, is a requirement for citizenship in God's kingdom. That the Jews had a narrow guest list that only Israelites and their patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would sit at this table and feast. But Jesus says here that the invitation will go wide, that many people will come and be blessed through him. He says that the Gentiles from all over the world will come and feast with King Jesus, that Jews and Gentiles will sit at the same table. This was a major coup 
here. This was something that was crazy to the Jews because they wouldn't eat a meal with someone who was a Gentile. They had strict laws and strict observances that they wouldn't even sit down to eat a meal with someone who is not Jewish. And yet Jesus says here that, the, that in the kingdom, Jews and Gentiles will feast together. Jesus alluding to and proclaiming that the power of his gospel will break down cultural and ethnic barriers. And in the book of Matthew, he closes his, his book and his look at the life and the ministry of Jesus with Jesus' great commission. That Jesus intended the extent of his disciple-making program to go worldwide. To go and make disciples of all nations. And what we read in the book of Acts and, 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 and on and on and on is that is what has happened. And that's why the book of Revelation is all about this, Jesus coming and ruling and reigning. And in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, we read, as John sees this vision, vision and he sees these folks standing around the throne of Jesus, he says they sang a new song saying, You are worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on earth. John saw all the whole scope of the universe in time and space from God's vantage point. And he saw that Jesus was the only one worthy to govern all of humanity because of what he accomplished at the cross and his victory at, at the grave. What John saw is this fulfillment of God's plan to make his name great throughout the entire earth. That plan was announced to Abraham. That plan was carried forward through Israel. That plan was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. And that plan was brought to completion and will be brought to the completion in the new heaven and the new earth. In the new creation forever and ever and ever. That is the story that we live in. That is the bigger part that the nation of Israel played in, or that's the part that nation, the nation of Israel played in God's bigger plan, that his name would be known throughout the entire earth, that nations would be blessed through his work in Israel, his delivering them out of slavery in Egypt and into a new relationship with himself, into a new land to be his people. And that's what we're going to look at next week as God comes and calls them a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests to make his name great to make his name great historian mark knoll wrote in his book the new shape of global christianity listen listen to this he says the christian church has experienced a larger geographical redistribution in the last 50 years than in any comparable period in its history more than half of all Christian adherents in the whole history of the church have been alive in the last 100 years. Close to half of Christian believers who have ever lived are alive right now. Listen to this. This past Sunday, 
It is possible that more Chinese believers attended church in China than in all of so-called Christian Europe. Yet in 1970, there were no legally functioning churches in all of China. And only in 1971 did the communist regime allow for one Protestant and one Roman Catholic church to hold public worship services. This past Sunday, more Anglicans attended church in each of Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda than did Anglicans in Britain and Canada and Episcopalians in the United States combined. This past Sunday, more Presbyterians were at church in Ghana than in Scotland, and more in congregations of the Uniting Presbyterian Church of Southern Africa than Presbyterians here in the United States. This past Sunday, the churches with the largest attendance in England and France were mostly black congregations. About half of the churchgoers in London were African or African-Caribbean. And this past week in Great Britain, at least 15,000 Christian foreign missionaries were hard at work evangelizing the locals. And listen to them, most of these missionaries are from Africa and Asia. What we see here is that we live in a world today where God's name is known. We live in a world today where the nations are knowing the name of God that we are part of this global church, that people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation are coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord, that they are knowing that Yahweh is God above all other gods. As American Christians, sometimes we are in danger. Uh, I don't want to say sometimes, probably all the time. We are in danger of seeing only ourselves as the center, only ourselves as the beneficiaries of God's blessings. And like the Jews in Jesus' day, we tend to envision a kingdom where we're the only ones at the table, people who speak like us and look like us and think like us, that we're the ones who are going to be eating and feasting with Jesus. Just like with anything, we make ourselves the center of the world, don't we? It's not hard for us to do. When we read the trajectory of the scriptures and of history, it should humble us this morning in worship. That God has shown grace to us here. That we, in the words of Paul, who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And not because we're Americans. Not because we're more deserving of it. Not because of any ethnic or cultural superiority we possess simply because of God's favor and his desire from the beginning to make his name great amongst all the nations. We are beneficiaries of that plan and of God's desire. What God has done in our lives isn't just for us. It's for those around us that just like Israel, as God is working in our lives to bring us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, to transform us and shape us into our new identity as his people, he is doing that so that he can still bless the nations through us. That our lives are not our own, our story is not our own, our existence is not just about us. That we are a small part of a bigger plan that God has to bring 
every nation and tribe and people and tongue into his kingdom, to feast with him, to live with him forever and ever and ever. And that's why, that's why we here this morning, we have to be in relationship with people that are different than us. We have to be in relationship with people who think different than us, who look different than us, who speak different from us, who live different from us. Because what God wants to do is to put us in position and in proximity with people who do not know him so they can see what he is doing in our life and know that he is God. That is God's goal. That is his goal. That's been the goal of all of human history. And that is why we as a church should resist all these attitudes that are floating around today of cultural and ethnic superiority and this protectionism in all of its form. The church cannot be a blessing to the nations if we are constantly grasping for power, clinging to our rights, trying to protect our own cultural expressions at the expense of people who are different than us. That's why we have to humbly lay these things down and know that we as people who have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light are citizens of that kingdom first and foremost. It doesn't mean that we bash America. It doesn't mean that we do all of these crazy things that some people, it means that our allegiances are to Jesus Christ first and foremost. And it means that the way that we live our lives, the way that we see the world, the framework through which we make decisions about how we live is done first and foremost because I'm a Christian, because I belong to Jesus, and because what Jesus is doing in my life is not only for my benefit, my security, my safety, my prosperity, but it's to make his name known and great in all of the nations. And that means that both individually and institutionally, we recognize our privilege and we accept the responsibility as Americans that comes with that privilege to not withdraw but to engage, to leverage our money, our careers, our relationships, our time, our resources, our education towards one ultimate end that God's name is known throughout all of the earth. And this year at SOMA, that is what we really want to do as a church. We want to grow into that this year. We want to move forward in that direction as, as, as a church community. We want to see God. We want to see God's name be made starting right here. Starting right here in this part of town where there are people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation that are living right here. Living right here in our neighborhood, in our backyard, going to the schools that our kids go to school with. Playing on the ball teams that our kids play on. Living in the neighborhoods that we live in. At our workplaces. Those folks are here. The nations are here. And so it's not just about sending money and people overseas, though that's what we're also going to pursue and grow in and figure out what does that look like for a young church to move in that direction. But it also means being present here, being localized here, setting our roots down here so that we can be a blessing to the nations that are here. We all have experienced the love and the grace that God has given us. We have all experienced being outsiders of the kingdom of God and being brought near by God's divine grace. And as a church, 
when we celebrate this every Sunday, when we take a piece of the bread and we dip it in the juice. There's a reason that we have the symbolism of the one loaf of bread. Sorry for those who are gluten-free and need that. You're, this, is still, this is all one thing. But, the, but, but this one loaf of bread, that's the reason that we take it and we all take from that is that we are recognizing that this is not just about me and Jesus, that we are participating in one body of Christ. And we celebrate that. And we know that this morning, that yesterday morning, The body of Christ has been spread out over this entire, this entire globe. And we are saying along with them that we worship and we acknowledge God, Jesus Christ, as the one true God. And so I want to invite you this morning, if that is true of you, if you are a Christian this morning to come and to take a piece of the bread, to dip it in the juice, we'll have stations on my right and left and a gluten-free station in the back for those who need it. Come and do that with humility. Come and do that along with Jethro, where you are delighted and you rejoice and you worship at the mighty acts of God's deliverance on behalf of his people worldwide. Let me pray. God, we are humbled this morning in view of your grace. We're humbled to know that we did nothing to earn this. It's not because of what culture we come from. It's not because of what opportunities that we've had. It's not because of any of those things. It is simply because of your grace and your mercy shown to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that both individually and institutionally, as a group of people here as Soma Northwest, our brothers and sisters at Soma Midtown, brothers and sisters at Soma Downtown, I pray that we would be a church community where you have planted us in this city that reflects your desire that your name be made great in all the nations. I pray that you put us in contact with people in this city who need to know you. People from all over this globe who are here and who have an opportunity to hear the gospel. I pray that you make us aware of that. I pray that you would put us in contact with needs that open those doors. I pray that we, this church, would be a light, and that this church would reflect who you are, that this community would know that you are God because of Soma Church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.